The world does not need yet another ultimate guide to social media. I checked. Google told me there are over 700,000 of these things, and I put that search term in quotes, my friends. Yes, the content marketing industry is full of tips and tricks, cheats and hacks, rules, and best practices. In our industry and in our company's niche, we are overrun by generic advice and a whole lot of stuff. But despite that noise, some people stand out. Some people lead instead of follow. And their secret for doing so isn't tech, it's technique. It's not a buyer persona, it's their own person. Everything that makes them unique as individuals applied confidently and overtly to their work. Because only then can you stand out in the noisiest era in history. I'm Jay Akunzo, and I believe there's something more to this content marketing work we do. I'm on the hunt to find others who feel the same way and use that belief to break from conventional thinking. It's unthinkable, in partnership with Content Marketing World. Here's the deal. There are lots of really great marketing speakers out there. And and, and then and also me, and then there's me. I, I talk the words about things good about the marketing's um sta- what I'm trying to say is speakers, we know their names, we like their thinking, but what really makes them them? In other words, how does the individual matter in the marketing that they or that we do every day? Because if we're gonna find and follow what makes us different, the one thing nobody else has access to is who we are. So, in addition to our usual documentary-style episodes, I'm partnering with Content Marketing World every other week to explore that concept. Together, we're going on a journey to hear from names you know, telling stories you don't. This week, Mitch Joel. My first real presentation was in front of like 4,000 people. It was on the same day as a day-long leadership event that culminated with Dr. Phil. So, you know, flushing of the bowels was a very, (laughs) 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 you know, like the nerve, I mean, you know, anxiety, panic attacks, freaking out. Mitch lives in Montreal, and he's the president of Miram, a digital marketing agency now owned by WPP. This guy is everywhere. Speaking, contributing to radio shows, writing books, hosting his own podcast, writing things every single day. I'm exhausted just reading this list here of stuff that he does. So let's skip all that and learn less about what he does and more about how and, of course, why. Mitch first started public speaking as a way to pour some gasoline on his sales fire. But the evolution of it over the years has been, you know, pretty dramatic where I started getting really interested in the form of, of public speaking and that sort of got me into the you know the whole sausage factory of it you know sort of really going behind the scenes and studying things like stand-up comedy mm-hmm. and magicians and magic and performance uh and a little bit of theater not so much on the theater side it's just not my thing and in in there i just discovered a skill Just, I didn't, you know, you sort of hear, wow, that was great, that was great. And 
being the sort of self-deprecating human and Canadian that I am, it's like, you know, don't apologize for everything and don't take any compliment too seriously. But I actually started seeing in myself that this is a skill that I think I'm actually okay at or good at. Notice my hesitation to even compliment myself there. <laughs> and um, that really was a big shift in my thinking where I realized I, I really do have, I get joy out of building decks and slides and stories and trying the material out and seeing what works. And I think the output of that is in the feedback, you know, the feedback that I get, you know, I can be funny, I can be humorous, I have great visuals, all that stuff is fantastic. But when I see things in the commentary, like it was one of the few speakers of the day where I actually took notes and was able to apply it to my work at that moment where I realized this actually has a high level of efficacy. Mm. And that's what really drives it more and more for me these days. Got it. And so do you mentioned seeing kind of behind the scenes or just thinking more deeply about it, how the sausage is made or how speeches get built. Uh, do you remember the first couple of things that were surprising to you or new? You know, for me, as one example, uh, as a speaker, I've always been fascinated by blocking, you know, the movements you have on stage being very intentional because I started as someone who just kind of like paced frenetically that kind of matched my person. Uh, but then I learned about blocking and it became more of an intent and it helped me maximize the delivery vehicle, which is public speaking in, in a way that I hadn't before. Did you have something similar in your past? I can frame it more from a moment in time. My first real presentation was in front of like 4,000 people. It was on the same day as a day-long leadership event that culminated with Dr. Phil. In life, you can break people up in a lot of categories, but one of them is you're either a giver or a taker. So, you wow. know, flushing of the bowels was a very, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like the ner I mean, you know, anxiety, panic attacks, freaking out. It was mon I had months of preparation. I think what I did really well is I really dove into being prepared. I didn't want to be the CEO that gets up there and goes, you know, I don't normally do this for a living and I was asked to do this and I'm going to stand at the podium and read some comments. Yeah. I actually really wanted to deliver. And I really put time, energy and effort into learning what it takes. And one of the things I did, and I don't even know where in my brain I came up with it, but it turned out to be one of like your blocking would be my this is I had a friend of mine in high school who was a year younger than me that was a pretty well-known stand-up comedian. And I sort of gave him a shout. I hadn't spoken to him in years. And I just said, I need you. I'm dying. I'm nervous. I'm panicking. Maybe a couple of jokes will help. You know, sort of like that. <laughs> That's how we all think, which by the way is a terrible idea if you're right. not a comic. Yeah, throw out some gifts and you'll yeah. be fine. Yeah, no, yeah, never. Yeah. So what I did was, is, and he was really kind and helpful. And, and he came to my office and we sat in my boardroom and I performed the, the hour as I had it at the time, hoping that at the end he'd go, I wrote 20 jokes for you and this is going to be great. And I finished and I said, so what do you got? He's like, I don't have anything. And I was like, what? What do you mean you have nothing? Like, what was the whole point? And he's like, listen, like, I, I think writing jokes for you is going to be really inauthentic, but why don't we have a conversation? I took some notes about some of the things. And we sort of went through the presentation and he, because he didn't know about, you know, what the area I was talking about, which mm, at the time yeah. was things like, you know, YouTube and blogs and stuff like that. He was like, well, what about this? And just the conversation led me to have humorous moments in my presentation that I think evolved to the point where people think it's just off the cuff or that it's just happening in the moment or that I did a little snide side comment when in reality it was formulated from my conversation with this great stand-up comedian, his name is Joey Elias, and my thinking around is there an angle to everything I say that might make this story component 
seem very off the cuff, but actually is something really practiced and rehearsed that has a lot of humor in it. And the stand-up comedy thing is so perfect to, to me in my experience of speaking. It's always been like you go to the small clubs, you work on your material, then you have your HBO or now Netflix special. And it's sort of like those jokes, the throwaway lines, the things that people really do remember, even though they seem off the cuff, like that's that's rehearsed material if you're a stand-up comic. You need to get get good at it because the last thing you want is to throw away a line that that deadens the entire room and now you've derailed the whole speech. And that's the difference between what I would say telling a joke and adding humor or humanity right. into the presentation. Right. They're not the same thing. So I don't get up on stage and perform magic, but I've studied a lot of what happens behind the scenes to understand components of it in terms of body shape, body language, hand motion, even intonation, words, how slides change versus what you're saying that doesn't, it has no, you know, you'd never make the connection between magic, but I learned it by understanding how magicians get up on stage and do, you know, it really is the impossible, right? Because you go to see a magic show and it's like, here's this coin and I'm going to make it disappear. We both know you're going to make it disappear. We both know that it's fake, that it's a trick, that it's an illusion, but it happens. And every time it happens, we all go, how do you do that? I have no idea that was real. Right. And that component has to be there, I think in a presentation and it's a very nuanced thing to do. So those are the mechanisms that I feel make it more human because people attach onto it. They, they move to the edge of their seat. They're learning, you know, people learn when they're interested. I've had this debate with a couple of speakers. I'd be curious for your take. It actually comes from a roundtable discussion with a few famous comedians. So I think it was Jerry Seinfeld and Chris Rock and Louis C.K. And I'm forgetting a couple more. Um, but they it were just Ricky Gervais. Yes. Yes. So you know the one. It, do they come yeah. to see the material or do they come to see you? And I think that can apply to a keynote speaker as well. Do you, do you kind of have a take on that? Or do you, do you think it's kind of too murky? It's, it's a false choice? No, I, I think that... I think it depends on if you're a celebrity or not. I'm not a celebrity. So I think people come because they want to hear about the content. Hopefully it's going to be delivered in a cogent, intelligent, humorous, memorable, educational way. And I'm just trying to deliver on that. If by doing that, it elevates some form of celebrity that I may or may not have, depending on who you ask, I think that's fine. Where where I think they were coming from is more the Jerry Seinfeld model of, you know, yeah, you may have a bit of leeway in the first five minutes because you're Jerry Seinfeld, but after that, if you're not funny, you, you suck. Yeah. So it's more about the runway, where I think that a lot of celebrities, and I, I share the stage with people like that all the time, they could be celebrities in fashion, in entertainment, in sports, in business, they are given a bit more leeway because of who they are. But at the end of the day, I get to see that feedback behind the scenes, and I know if they did well or if they tanked. So you can have, you know, 100 million followers on YouTube. And everyone thinks the world of you and they're fawning over you while you're on stage. But behind the scenes, they're writing down things like that was terrible. I didn't learn anything. <laughs> it was very self-serving. So all of those things, I think, again, being who I am, they create a sense of humility and, and respect. Yeah. So there are definitely moments in my, in my gigs throughout the year that I have a couple of more minutes just based off of what the gig is. But more often than not, you know, I'm getting called into a corporate event. They're trying to figure out how are our customers connecting better through technology? How does that come together in our marketing and innovation? How do we think differently about disruption and transformation? The model of what we do 
went from this amazing blue ocean to this bloody red sea really fast. It just so happens we have a guy here, right? right. <laughs> but, but it's not like Mitch Joel's here. What is he going to grace us with? Yeah, today? oh, totally. Versus totally. if it's a Ricky Gervais or an Amy Schumer or whomever, all you got to do is put their name on the headline and people will show up. Yeah, yeah. There's the, they're, they're the Phil Seats kind of speaker instead of the Phil, Phil Mines or Phil Notebooks kind of speaker. Although I, I'd argue that good, good ones do, do uh, all three, perhaps at once. You have to, yeah. yeah. You don't yeah. get that big without that. Right, right. And, and you mentioned a word in there. So you mentioned that when a speaker, or in this case, a comedian gets up on stage, if they're Jerry Seinfeld, they might have a little bit more runway. I've actually heard you use that word in a slightly different context. I've heard you use that term runway as in, given where we are in this period of time, with the models that we're trying to build and the technologies that are continuing to advance at such a rate that they are, the road is is very long and very wide. The runway yeah, is very yeah. long. Yeah. What, why are you fascinated by that concept? I'm always worried that I'm going to become somebody who is not important anymore or not relevant or selling something that people don't need anymore. And... You know, from an early age and an early sort of vision for what I wanted to have out of my professional career, I always thought if you always have at least uh, a big toe, a foot, a leg in the future, you're, there's always something new coming. So it wasn't like I was like, well, I was known as the social media guy and now I'm going to be the virtual reality guy. That's not the case, right? And I talk a lot about it and I keep sort of repeating it, but I talk about this sort of triangle that I've built, a model that I built around the three core areas that I speak about with the bullseye in the middle. My three points of the triangle would be brands and customers and technology. Those are the three. And the the bullseye in the middle of that is marketing communications. So, So knowing that and thinking about that, all I'm really doing is saying, look, everything you're doing in the present is is fine, could probably be optimized, could probably be streamlined. There's more areas that you can be efficient with it, but there's also all this stuff coming. Now, I, that all that stuff coming is what, really what I mean. Like I look at my business and I think, well, it's a long and, and wide runway because it's going to keep going. Technology always changes and it's wide because there's just a lot of opportunity across B2B, B2C, small, medium, and large, the vertical you're in, the type of person you're trying to communicate and connect to. So if you're speaking to young people, you might be like, we're not going to talk about Snapchat now. Now we're going to move to chatbots. I don't know what it might be. But if you then sort of shift that to a different age, you might say, well, you know, now we're seeing, especially as we're recording this conversation right now, we're seeing that more middle-aged people are moving into Snapchat, not as millennials cease or flatline. It's just they're moving into it. You know what I mean? So that, that right. you can always move pieces that makes that runway extra long or extra wide. And I like playing in that space. I like the sort of, and again, I think part of it is because I tend to be both uh, optimistic and, and opportunistic at the same time. There's a little bit of paranoia in there, I'd say, too. You said you were worried at the beginning of not uh, either being important or selling something that matters or knowing something that matters. And I feel like that's uh, that's healthy. When you get stagnant, and you know, the, the innovator's dilemma comes to mind. When you get stagnant or are afraid to move pieces around, like you said, I think that's where you start to to nosedive. I mean, yes and, and no, right? There are long established and interesting businesses that have been built upon generation of generation. And while they've iterated and innovated, they still remain important, relevant. You know, if you go and speak to the most boring, but successful wealth managers, they'll say things like, 
People will always eat chewing gum. People will always need to shave. People will always need to clean their house. People will always want to look for a better deal on clothes. And they sort of have their their entire portfolios built around these types of models that obviously work. I have no issue with those businesses. A lot of those businesses wind up being clients of mine in one way, shape, or form or another. I just believe the excitement for me personally is in being at that edge. And you're right, the paranoia is there only in the, the, the fact of who wants to be fired, who wants to feel like they no longer uh, are important or relevant. And candidly, as I get older, you know, it's, it's a young person's world and I want to stay young. <laughs> I do get paranoid. I'm, I'm someone who, I worked in venture capital for the past three years before leaving the firm I worked for um, to strike it on my own, but I was the lone guy kind of beating the drum for Snapchat. And I felt like I even wasn't that young, like compared to a lot of the people I was interacting with on Snapchat, I was on the older end. How does someone like you, with all the commitments you have, you know, you mentioned early on all the different projects you're involved in, you're a busy guy. Like, how do you stay informed and up on all these things as they change? It's just a lot of reading. I find that I am most inspired and most creative when I'm reading either long form, preferably nonfiction books. It might not even be half relevant to my area of, of expertise, but just in that realm. When it's big, rich, and takes me time to get through it, I find that effort is really powerful. And I say that after taking almost like two gap years of sort of being like, I'm just gonna like save a bunch of stuff on pocket that people talk about on Facebook yeah. and Twitter and all that. And it was all longish content. It wasn't just sort of like newsy stuff, but I felt like I was like just eating the chum and not getting into the real sort of protein and, and meat of it all. Sure. That's one big part of it. I mean, that's like 80%. The other 20% is probably divided amongst writing and talking. Uh, you know, the, the people, you blog so much. I can't believe you still even blog. And I'll do like a thousand words a day. I haven't stopped for like, you know, what is it, 17 years or something like that. And it's not because I've, I've got this like weird OCD thing in, in me. I actually, if I had more time, I'd probably write more. It's just, that is how I output whatever was brewing in me that day or the day before. The reason I do the podcast is another one of those. It's almost like this weird head trippy thing where I'm like, Hey, um, I read, I don't know, uh, you know, this book called the age of discovery and Chris Katarna, I reached out to him and said, Hey, I'd love to take you for a coffee and talk to you for an hour. It's like, he's never going to return my call. But if I have a podcast and it's done something and it's built a platform, maybe he'd want to talk a little bit about these ideas. So I, I look at that. And if you, if you've listened to the show and it's, it's, again, it's long form content. I do a week. They've been doing it for over 10 years. It is. It's that. It's like it's literally like sitting down with a coffee and having a conversation. So that's yeah. why when I even see things like comedians in cars getting coffee, or Joe Rogan, or Mark Marin, or all of these others, which are amazing shows that I, you know, uh, Brian Koppelman's The Moment. I oh, love so them great. all. They're all great. I just and I, I don't. They did not steal my format. They did not make up this one. But I've been doing that format for a long, long time. So I feel actually really validated by the success that others have because I'm like clearly that model of content works, that conversational like yeah. thing. And what most people don't get is that it's not the trick to get somebody like that to spend an hour with me. It's that I'm genuinely asking them things that are I'm struggling with, that I don't understand, right. that I'm not sure I have right or 
or I'm regurgitating what I think to hear back if they agree or don't agree, because then I can take that and use that as an input. So it's that model of like reading a lot um, and putting it out by expressing myself through, for me, it happens to be writing a long form. And then on the other side, it's the conversational aspects of it that to me create my system that that really is my system right right i you know i'm struggling right now as someone who's got a podcast and writes a lot and speaks a lot and has other projects on the way like there's just so much swirling in my world that i'm i've gone into like spartan mode where it's like i've ruled out my my reading routine entirely and i'm i'm really struggling to try to weave that in there is it just something where you make it a priority and it's like on your calendar like how do you negotiate spending time reading and learning versus producing I don't, um, I don't have an answer to that. I definitely don't schedule anything. Yeah. I, I, I'll find myself sometimes writing a thousand words at, at you know, five in the morning or sometimes at 3 PM or sometimes one is so one of the, the mindsets that I bring to work is I've, I've led a very crazy life that I've sometimes documented, sometimes not. One of the areas is that I wound up hooking up at a very young age with this guy who wound up becoming one of the leading close quarter combative instructors in the world literally. And I was certified with this guy and you know, used to train like Navy SEALs and SWAT teams and federal air marshals. And this is going back a long time. And um, as you can tell by my current physique and, but, but in that time, like it was also the beginning of UFC. So we also did a lot of stuff with the early UFC guys. And, and I mean, there's just a lot of like really interesting stuff. And one of the stories he told me, and he's still a close friend of mine is they were training, I think he was training like a special ops for Navy SEALs. And he was curious about how, because what we do is we see like movies and TVs and these guys in really extreme situations. But what you don't see is like, okay, we've trained and now you get the call. And now in 30 hours of travel, after those 30 hours of travel, you have to perform at your best. Hmm. Like think, like no one ever talks about that Yeah. You got on a plane, you fly halfway across the world. It's a different time zone. You haven't eaten. You've been on a plane. You're, and now you have to like, you know, d- swim and dive and shoot and fire and like a high stress. And and so it, it, the conversation you would ask him about are things like sleep. Like, how, where do you sleep? Like, how are you well rested? Because he's like, I got to like have business class for a red eye. Otherwise, I'm a disaster the next day, you know, for like a meeting. And one of the one of these special operations people said to him, you sort of get in this rhythm of like, you know, your, your boss, your chief says, guys, two hours sleep, eyes, eyes shut and you close your eyes and you go to sleep. And I was just like, can you imagine? Like, I could never do that. I'd be like, no way. My pants. I'd be, you know. <laughs> but what you can do is you can take that attitude to your work. And that's what I did. So it's not one of those things that I have to schedule. It's like, if I have to write, I write. And it's not like, well, I need to have my right cup of coffee here and my right app and this and that. Sometimes I find myself writing a thousand words on my iPhone. Sometimes I find myself dictating it into the phone because I happen to be driving. Sometimes I'll like literally get off of the plane and instead of getting into the car, I'll just sit on the floor there. And and I'm not trying to create an image of this wild. It's just, it's the discipline of that sort of blue collar, like Stephen Pressfield talks about it in The War of Art. He talks about, you know, putting your ass where your heart is a little bit. And um, to me, that those sort of two stories that see Stephen Pressfield and the special ops folks, that lifestyle, I've just always applied it to all my stuff. So mm-hmm. I don't look at it like I have to schedule it. You know, I'm reading. I'm reading. It's discipline. Here. It's discipline. But it's also it's also self-awareness. I feel like we did an episode uh, on Unthinkable earlier called the uh, this In Search of the Perfect Writing Process. And, and the punchline is, well, I'll kind of give it away if anyone's going to listen, but... 
it's the perfect writing process is whatever works for you. It's not, you know, like, so what if Anne Handley has a tiny house in her backyard where she likes to write? Or, you know, the joke I made is like Seth Godin likes to bick his head clean before he writes every morning. Are you going to do that? Like, it's just whatever works for you. And it sounds like you But it's interesting. In. But, you know, so the other thing is like there's there are like I love reading spot like that and you know it's funny you mentioned Anne who's a close friend of mine like I, I was literally having her text me pictures of the tiny house being built because I was so jealous such a great idea <laughs> but I, I look at it differently I don't look at things like all of those sort of like you know productivity life hacking you know all the, all the amazing medium magazines on writing as like I should adopt that technique or that ethic or that schedule I find that I'm inspired by it and that's the opportunity the opportunity isn't to read something and be binary about it and go is this useful to me or not the opportunity is to read something and it could be something not even related to your field of excellence and ask yourself why did this matter everything that comes after that might be something new might be something different right Right. so it's more in that framework that i tend to look at the things specifically yeah there's like an implied question at the end of everything you consume that sounds like gospel which is what do you think about this Well, that's like an old school blogging trick. So that was the blogging trick that many of us deployed when there were only a handful of us to just get people to comment. Now I do it more of as like a a nod back to that era. So I mentioned at the beginning, this is about the person. So I actually do this uh, ending because I want to respect your time here called Alpha Beta Scale. And it's kind of treating your career and your life like different stages of building a product. And so I want to ask you three questions about like kind of your personal growth through those three stages of product growth. Um, And so the alpha question, as the name implies, is the earlier version. So can you cite something from earlier in your life, be it a moment, a hobby, a person, that had a profound impact on on the way you are and and the success you're having today? Alpha for me would be my buddy, Andy Nolman. Andy was a real known entity in the local areas, being one of the main people at the Just for Laughs Comedy Festival who then tagged on to another well-known startup guy. This person, Garner Bornstein, had sold uh, one of the first ISPs uh, in Canada and made, had done well. And together, they launched this idea called thefunniest.com, which was supposed to be a comedy portal. I mean, we're talking about in the late 90s, so long before Funny or Die or any of this stuff, that they then morphed into something called Airborne Mobile which their idea was to deliver content on a mobile device, which seems very ubiquitous today, but I want to frame this in a day and age where there was no mobile web browse. So it was really a crazy thing. And they called me over. I had been working in uh, the search engine world, like prior to Google even. And um, when I walked into his office, he handed me a book. It was uh, Tom Peters, The Project 50. Now I'd sworn to myself ever since I dropped out of college university that I wasn't going to read anymore. <laughs> and I just had this, you know, textbooks, blah, blah, blah. And I read this book by Tom Peters and it completely turned my world upside down. I just didn't realize that nonfiction could be that way. Mm. And I really do thank Andy for, for doing that, for telling me to read that book. Not only is that book a great book, but it really sent me down that rabbit hole that we talked about earlier with reading and, and what it's just afforded me. And what was uh, the context of the book or, or actually what about the writing or the nonfiction style struck you? It just wasn't textbook. It was Tom Peters. He was funny. He was irreverent. It was short. It was snappy. It just set me down and 
you know, Tom Peters does, he references all these other books and all, who's that, who's that? And the next thing you know, you're sort of building this incredible spider of people's brains. And again, you know, to someone where I was, which was, I don't know if it was my late twenties or early thirties, it was just like, again, it's sort of like, I'm never going to do that. I'm never, it was green eggs and ham. I do like green eggs and ham. I don't like them. And then you eat green eggs and ham and you're like, gee, I like eggs and ham. So it was just one of those moments for me. It was just incredible. But the beta question is, let's say the last year, the last version of you that you've released into the wild, what's something that you've learned recently? Recently? That's a good question. You know, recently, a lot of things have happened. I mean, we're talking about a window of the past two and a half years where I sold my business to WPP, which was like the largest marketing communications network in the world. We rebranded our agency as Miram. It became eight other shops that all came together. I I went from full-on entrepreneur for close to 15 years to being part of a 200, 300,000-person, $35 billion public company. So, you know, it it stumps me because I feel like every day there's something new I'm learning about myself. I'm learning that I'm no longer an entrepreneur right now. I'm entrepreneurial. I'm operational. Uh, but I'm not that entrepreneur anymore. And so every day I find myself, it's almost like if you do any form of meditation or headspace where you do the thing where, you know, just let your brain wander and now focus back on your breath and now let your brain wander and focus. That strategy of doing that's very similar. You sort of let your brain wander and you realize, no, I got to come back here because I'm operational now. So that to me has probably been the biggest beta is getting back into the mindset, which I used to do, obviously work within an organization. Can you give me an example of like one thing you you do differently now that you weren't doing for 15 years? Oh, I mean, it's planning ahead. You know, planning ahead used to be this <laughs> irreverent sort of like, what does it take to to get there? Planning ahead now is, you know, you're, you're trying to get your budget in order. Yeah, you're trying yeah. to ensure that you're not changing the engine mid-flight because there's an expectation of revenue and margins and profit. How you pitch you know, there's new products and services that we can offer as the new entity that we are. So, I mean, it's like, it's almost like what, what has, you know, like it's more of the opposite, which is what, what hasn't changed. I don't know. <laughs> and the scale question is looking ahead. And I have a feeling this is the question that you're most excited to answer, given what I've seen from your speaking. But what's something you firmly believe about the future? Oh, I believe a lot in terms of the future. I, I'm, very, I'm actually very optimistic when I know it's easy to be quite dystopian. I think the most obvious one for me is that I really do believe that augmented virtual reality, mixed reality, whatever it is, that will be the only platform. I mean, I just think we are going to, in no short order, move away from this conversation about web and mobile and be really within a virtual experience basically all the time. What will be the interface? So I, I, I talk a lot uh, about voice. Obviously, as a podcaster, that's sort of the like an early version of voice. But I just think voice interfaces, it's more natural to speak and listen than to punch keys with your fingers. Do you think that'll be the interface? Or are we going to have headsets on? Like, how do you see us inputting ourselves into that kind of world? Well, remember, we, we, we punch fingers right now because that's what the technology is. Uh, I don't think everybody's a writer. I definitely have people in my life who need help constructing, you know, even text messages and things like that. So, yeah, to me, it's obvious that it's sort of visual. I would say visual, right? It's a, it, there's no doubt if you look at what works, it's image-based. It's images and video, you know, voice being a huge component of that. And you're right, when we can move navigation away from our fingers and palms to our voice, 
that's going to be transformational as well. And again, you look at this and the, the quote that I just always reflect on, because even when I say it, I can imagine anybody listening, it being sort of like just crickets and like splinks. There's like, oh, the crazy guys talking about, you know, virtual reality again. <laughs> but I had Kevin Kelly, who wrote the book, The Inevitable. He's the co-founder of Wired and a well-known futurist on my podcast. And um, we were talking about VR and AR. And he said, you know, he, he said something that just, it sticks with me every day. He said, the future happens very slowly and then all at once. And it's very true. If I think of, you know, my almost 20 years of professional work, that he's absolutely right. I mean, I'm still talking to brands about things like e-commerce and digital and social, but it's, you know, it's it's very slow and all at once. I mean, it's been going on for, for two decades, and yet still most people are at early stages of really understanding it. So in the long future, to me, that's what it will be about. So one, one unified connected platform that is virtual. Thank you to our supporting partner today, Content Marketing World, for making this mini-series possible. I'll be the opening keynote of their event this year in Cleveland, which is crazy, right? Then I'm excited about something in Cleveland? <laughs> Visit contentmarketingworld.com to learn more and use the code UNTHINKABLE in all caps to get $100 off your ticket price. You can also come and see me speak and Mitch and 4,000 of your friends in content marketing because you have a lot of friends because you are quite popular and attractive and smart, and I like you. We're back next week with another full-feature Unthinkable episode. Until then, be sure you check out last week's kickoff of this very series. It's called Wizards, and we try to make sense of just how the individual fits into the marketing that we all do. Because maybe it's not about the wand as much as those who wield it. I don't really remember how that started. I, I don't I don't remember saying, I'd sure like to do this. I think it was more, we were in a student council meeting, and I was one of those student council nerds, and somebody said, well, somebody has to be the assembly, Jay will do it, and just sort of gave me the microphone. I don't think there was a big uh, RFP process <laughs> at that time. That's Jay Bear from last week's episode, Wizards. If you're not already, subscribe to Unthinkable wherever you get your podcasts, or you can get some extra goodies in the weekly Monday email, like a section that I call Email Antipasto, where I share little snacks and bites that you can mix and match because I'm Italian and everything comes back to food. So naturally, I have a food metaphor in my email. That's at unthinkable.fm if you haven't subscribed yet there. Once again, I'm Jay Akunzo, and I gotta say, Mitch Joel does the unthinkable. He breaks from conventional thinking, and he's an exception to all the noise. Are you? Are you?